Well, hey, Chris. Hey, John. And welcome to you and to everyone out there listening to a sort of in-between seasons episode of the Saul Searching Podcast. Uh, There's no new Better Call Saul episode to talk about, but we do have uh, a little bit of business and a new Bob Odenkirk project to talk about. And if nothing else, we're here to say that we are going to be back when Better Call Saul returns on April 10th. You can expect an episode of Saul Searching on Tuesday, the 11th. Hooray. We don't really have much of an indication of what the new season is going to involve. There's a lot of rumor, as always, about who might be on the show. You know, Aaron Paul, Brian Cranston, these are guys that when they get interviewed, they tend to get asked at least one question about whether they might return. And they always sound game, and it's hard to tell from what they say whether they're whether they're kind of tipping their hand as to something that's about to happen or if they're just sounding game because the game is to always stay stay game, you know, yeah. and to, to not talk down such possibilities. Right. But um, I don't know. How do you feel about that? I think we've probably discussed that on the show before. It seems very natural to me that Gus Fring is going to be a part of this season of Better Call Saul. I don't know that it really seems as natural or as necessary for... Uh, Walt or Jesse to show up. I think generally they should stay away from it. It seems like it would be very dangerous. Like I really, mm, I kind of don't want to see any of them trying to look, uh, you know, five years younger than than they looked at the start of Breaking Bad. It just seems like a strange, goofy thing to have to do when there's going to be no real good reason to do it, I wouldn't think, except for, you know, hooray, fun gimmick and, and, uh, you know, get a boost in the uh, publicity. I tend to agree. You, I think I've explained to you what my favorite possibility is, um, which is Jesse showing up in the Gene Cinnabon portion of the show. Oh, right. My thought above that would be they've done a good job thus far, so maybe I should just assume whoever they bring back, it will be related to an actual story idea. Because I don't think thus far on Better Call Saul we've had the feeling that they brought somebody back in a way that didn't make sense. I might be wrong, but I feel like every time they've brought back a character, like Tuca or whoever, Hector, um, that we've said to ourselves, oh, that feels organic with the story. And and knowing Mike, who's a major character on Better Call Saul, he has to have a relationship with these other characters. So those things seem, you know, necessary if we're going to track Mike's story as well as Jimmy's. Right. But if they start going outside of that, it will start to seem kind of cutesy, and it's just not something they need. But I so, like your I idea know. of putting Jesse in the in the... Black and white as as uh, part of a you know teaser of how we're going to get out of that, but you could hold off on that until you know until the time if if it ever comes where we are finally like wrapping up what's going on in the in the present day of the show, and we're going to kind of switch over to and then from the Cinnabon, here's what happens. I think you know that I would like to see Gene somehow redeem himself or get his mojo back, but I don't know what that means anymore because now I don't know. Uh, if Saul was ever really Saul. And I think that might be the most interesting possibility of the show. And I still see people talk about the, even the official verbiage from AMC talks about the slide from Jimmy to Saul as this moral turn. Mm -hmm. But I still think that the most subversive fun thing that they're already setting up that they could do is to say that it's never actually a turn. You know, it's never actually a full turn. He's always who he is. He's really Jimmy. I know you were last season expressing that you... You hoped that things got a little crazier sooner rather than later. Do you still feel that way? Or are you kind of, now that you've been refreshed and you've waited, if it's another kind of contemplative, uh, introspective season, are you ready for that? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I, same as last season, if it's good, it's good. Um, and part of the expectation of, ooh, some big weird stuff is going to happen is on me. You know, they didn't, like, tell me to 
get all excited about over-the-top twists and turns. So I probably need to cool my heels and say, well, if that's an indication of what they did last season, that it's going to be a slow boil in a world where where things really do take their time, then I probably need to uh, settle in for that and enjoy that for what it is. Well, all right. I don't really have much else to say except that I'm looking forward to it, and I look forward to chatting with you about it. And and we did sort of promise at the beginning of this some new Bob Odenkirk material. Now, we have we have left behind the Pledge of Odenkirk that was the the literal inception of this podcast, which was that I um, was such a big Bob Odenkirk fan, especially in recent years, that the notion of him having a show that was going to devote all of his energies to him uh, being the main focal point of it, I was just so incredibly excited about it that I composed the, the Pledge of Odenkirk, which we which we played around with in our first season and started all the episodes with it. And we kind of left it behind. I think at some point I felt guilty. I didn't want to treat someone as my spirit animal. He didn't sign on to be an animal. Uh, <laughs> okay. Or a spirit. <laughs> so, <laughs> And I think also for me, the notion of something being a spirit animal, it became played. Like it went from kind of a fun thing to say about something to something that people said about like, this yogurt is my spirit animal. Yeah, it's out there. Um, so if someone wants to go to the first few episodes of the show and hear the pledge, you can hear it. Um, but that idea of this being sort of a Bob Odenkirk Appreciation Society uh, has been kind of left, you know, in, by the wayside with the fact that we've had this show to talk about. And there's been plenty of Bob Odenkirk to discuss there. But given that it has been a long time since we've done an episode and there is something new that's very Bob Odenkirky that is out, we thought we'd devote a little time to discuss the Netflix original, the new movie, um, Girlfriend's Day, which is... Sort of a noirish satire slash rom com slash indie flick. I mean, it's got the marks of a lot of different genres. And in fact, the way it shifts between the genres may be one of the things that I want to talk about here in a minute. But um, it focuses on a greeting card writer in a, in a sort of alternate universe where that has some prestige to it. It's as though he's a great novelist, he's right. a great greeting card writer. Right. And it basically is a greeting card writer who falls on hard times, who loses his job and can't can't write a, a card to save his life and then ends up needing to write a card seemingly to save his life as he gets embroiled in this crazy caper. In a, and again, in a world where people are treating the next great greeting card like it's the the, the nuclear codes or something like right. that. It's it's a MacGuffin in, right. the, in the movie. And I love that. So yeah, I'll throw it to you. What did you think of Girlfriend's Day, which people can watch now on Netflix right away? Um, I liked it quite a bit. Um, it... Uh, uh, I'm not sure how to criticize it. I want to, you know, give a caveat that it's not like the, the best thing ever, but it was really nice, and so uh, I'll I'll just say uh, it's enjoyable. So so watch it and enjoy it. But yeah, the the I'll, uh, maybe you know one of my favorite things about it is the kind of uh, creating of a of a silly alternate world. Uh, which it's it's not giving too much away to say this because it's kind of the setup of the of the movie is is uh, you know it reminds you of the lobster or something where it's like oh they just they just made up their own rules for this universe and we we just have to go along and say oh this is a world where there's a lot of people who are really into greeting cards and greeting cards are a, a big part of their lives and uh, uh, and and it's important to them and that's just fun and funny and and goofy. You could have gotten like a five minute sketch out of this as well. You know yeah. the. The, the greeting card writer who is this tortured artist. Right. And I do think there were some kind of tonal hiccups. But overall, I think that that was the strongest thing about it was the the way that they evoked this world where you just every new detail kind of made you go, oh, I guess I guess I didn't miss something before. 
uh, they actually are indicating that like this is a serious profession and that people know who these famous greeting card writers are. <laughs> right. And that there's a bar that's not just coincidentally called Card Sharps, um, but is also actually a place where card writers hang out. You know, it, it takes a minute for it all to kind of build on you. And I think that uh, I think that is a strength of the movie for sure. Did it at any point feel like kind of not quite a movie, but kind of overstretched for a sketch idea? Or did you, did the story start kicking in? Did the characters kick in for you? I mean, did you find yourself getting kind of sucked into it? I got sucked into it and did watch it just like a movie, but I can see what you're saying. It is kind of, it's a short, it's an hour and seven minutes. And so it's kind of just a long short. And I do feel like at some point in it, I was not feeling like, like when it ended, I felt as if I had watched a, a whole movie-length thing. So I guess there was something about it that that didn't have as much uh, uh, complexity as a, as a usual feature. I was continually thinking, oh, a lot of this really works because Bob Odenkirk is a great actor, and he yeah. really is great. Well, and he knows how to cast himself now in that he knows what he likes to do and, and what people like to see him do, and so he, uh, you know— gets beat up a lot and he's a sad sack <laughs> and that that works for him I, I call it the gandolfini effect i only call it that because i knew i'd be talking about it with you i don't actually walk around talking about this but <laughs> for the purpose of this conversation i am calling this the gandolfini effect okay um where because i remember when james gandolfini would be in other roles after the sopranos didn't matter if he was in something for two minutes or our whole movie or whatever i his character was imbued with so much nuance and every little every little ex- exhale of air had some meaning to it you know and every little twitch of his eyebrow had some meaning to it because i'd gotten so used to watching him and sometimes i thought oh i'm enjoying this content or i'm looking at this character as being more complex than it is actually written because i'm used to seeing this performer in this intensely well written a nuanced role of Tony Soprano. Yeah. And I think now that I've gotten used to seeing Bob Odenkirk doing all that he can do on Better Call Saul, which is a lot, you know, a lot of different tones that, and I, if I see him in anything else, I'm automatically bringing the gravity and the depth that he has expressed on Better Call Saul to this. So I think this movie was greatly helped for me by the fact that I was ready to see Bob Odenkirk in some moody lighting, like furrowing his brow and trying to think his way out of something. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that I fully followed the the machinations of the plot at the very end and i actually was thinking about the fact you and i talked about this just yesterday noirish plots and thrillers and whether sometimes is it us or is it them when we when we when a movie loses us with its plot right um and i felt like this movie there were a couple of turns maybe i wasn't looking at the screen when somebody said something but i got a little confused about what stacy keach was doing and which brother was which and which card company were the good guys and which were the bad guys. I don't think it really matters, but right. I did I did wonder I, I, did you did, did all that click for you? Definitely had that feeling of a of a, you know, a Bogart movie where you're like, I'm not sure I'm following what they're trying to make me follow or whether the character is not following it. It's just a confusing haze through some of this. Um but I think that's that's purposeful in a lot of those movies and somewhat in this one. There, you, you know, you're supposed to be in a fog with the character of like, what's connected to what, and what am I, what am I hunting down? And uh, and finally, it comes together. And I did, you know, in the end, I felt like it all came together as clearly as most of those do. Um, but yeah, I had had that that little funk through some of it. But I don't know that it really matters. You know, like yeah. I've seen Big Lebowski. Uh, 
15 times and I still take a few things on faith that these things are connected or that they right. make sense. You know, right. one line of dialogue will settle a whole plot connection. And that's one of the things you and I were talking about the other day is when you blink and miss that one line or half a line, you kind of go, wait, what? But, but my point being, I got to the end of this and I watched that scene the second time this morning. And I thought, you know what, rather than viewing this as like an attempt at a legit noir thriller that is set like in in a in a quirky world of card writers i chose to view it as just like a really long satirical sort of pastiche of a noir you know yeah and if you think of it that way all those little things are, are it's almost conf- it almost is confounded by the fact that you've got someone like stacy keach acting his pants off because he would be a credible villain if this were a more dramatic movie yeah michael stevenson is the director and uh, Michael Stevenson is noteworthy for having directed the documentary about Troll 2, Best Worst Movie. Oh, I wanted to see that, but I did not. Uh, a really good one. And also, he was the actor who played the child. Uh, I'm looking at his Wikipedia. I don't know if the name of the character, but he was in Troll 2 as a child actor. And so he went and directed the documentary later. You know, having made kind of a quirky documentary, it makes you realize that maybe coming into this, there is a strong stylistic hand. I really do think some of the photography is quite nice. And it is a little bit of a a rogues gallery, murderer's row, whatever you want to say, of these little character actors that you kind of recognize from things. Yeah. Some of whom you'll, some of whom you'll know that you know them from a certain thing. Right. Nate Mooney, who plays Ryan McPoyle, one of the disgusting McPoyle brothers on It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, and um, Stephanie Courtney, who plays Flo in the progressive ads are just an example <laughs> of the sort of people I'm talking about when I say the little faces that you recognize. And the guy from Girls is the boss. So I wonder if this does well, if we might expect to see more of this type of thing, kind of something pitched between sketch comedy and a movie. I don't mean to downplay it. I think it's a neat thing that it's, that it, I, I'm saying this as kind of a positive, that this exists in between something you'd go to the theater and see and an episode of a television show. It, right. it can only exist on a service like this. I like that Netflix is able to do things like this and very recently the uh, Michael Bolton's Big Sexy Valentine special. Right. It was around an hour, you know, or 48 minutes or 53 minutes. And then this comes out and it's a movie and it's an hour and seven minutes. And I'm thinking, I kind of like this idea um, so I guess I encourage people to to check it out. We didn't really get too spoily. I would like to. I, I could say my favorite and least favorite things about it, which are both spoilery. But uh, I don't okay, know. I guess those are our general thoughts. We're encouraging people to watch it. If you don't want to hear anything slightly spoilery, uh, expect us to be back in your feed on April 11th with a, a new episode, which will actually be about the uh, the show that is our mission statement. So now we're going to get into spoily stuff because Chris has a couple of thoughts. Oh, I just wanted to say, I guess my, my fave thing about it was the owl sex nightmare, um, which I just thought was uh, well done and so silly and gave me uh, uh, encouragement that, uh, uh, I don't know if you know the ancient Greek myth of Leto and the swan, uh, where there's a, a big uh, swan sex scene, and I always thought uh, that should be a movie, but, you know, always had the question... Could it be executed? Would it ever work? Well, now this answers the question. Yes. Sex with a Giant Bird, uh, you you can portray on screen. And uh, so th- I think that's the go-ahead for somebody to make uh, Leto and the Swan. 
I like that that's your favorite thing about it. I, that to me is like, if you're saying bonus, like, you know, what, what are the pros and cons of this film? Right. The biggest pro right. is that it answers the question. No, no, you... that's not my, fa- I mean, the, 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 the it's a bonus <laughs> that it answers the question. But the scene is just my favorite scene in that it's a crazy spectacle and a really insane, fun idea. You know, uh, not because it answers that question, but because it's a crazy shocker. Is it not Lita? No, it's, it's, it's. It's Leto, L-E-T-O is, is the girl's name, I'm pretty sure. I think it's L-E-D-A. I'm sure you're not thinking of the other famous myth, Judge Leto and the Swan? Yeah, no, I'm sure I'm not thinking of that. Whatever it is, that's a go now. Hollywood can make that. But I was going to say, this is also spoilery, that uh, my my biggest ding against the movie, I would say, is that I wish we had gotten to read the card at the end, the all-important card which solves the movie and we never get to see what it says and you know i wouldn't mind if they did like they did if you go through a few things where you don't get to see it and you think i guess i'm maybe not going to get to see it and uh, but then in the very end they should have revealed it to us because they either could have written the greatest uh, romantic girlfriend greeting card ever written and uh, revealed that to us and had us agree wow that was great uh, or it could have been typically annoying and lame and just would have uh, fed into the, the 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 world of the movie that, uh, yeah, everybody's really impressed with that, <laughs> and that's the end of the movie. It made me think of the Monty Python sketch with the joke that kills people, that where you die laughing if you, yeah. if you hear this joke. Right. And they obviously can't, you know, that premise right. hinges on... Well, you can't live up to that. And, but that, right, and that makes sense that you wouldn't say that. I, I like your idea of the favorite, least favorite thing, though. So I'm going to try to think of mine. Uh, my favorite part, if I had to think of one moment, I think the montage of everybody receiving the card at the end was ridiculous. But also, it, it those little montages always always get me, and it's a cliche on so many shows now to have like all the characters. You show how everyone's unified in this moment. Yeah, it did the job of making fun of that kind of montage and kind of poking fun at the notion that all these characters are having like a, a greeting card moment that's like an, an important touching moment in their life you know but also it answered a question it actually gave a few characters like a little bit of resolution here or there that they wouldn't have otherwise gotten uh, particularly his old co-workers it was kind of funny to see oh they have a little romance going you know yeah. um but even like the humanity it extended to his ex-wife and Andy Richter as her new husband, like that could have easily been a more venomous portrayal. But they gave those characters a little bit of nuance, so it's less funny. Do you know what I mean? Because yeah. they're nuanced, right? But it's kind of nice. It's actually kind of sweet, like legit sweet. And then the right. end scene with the little kid having given the card to his mom, who we know keeps pawning him off on people, and we see his uncle, I guess standing there kind of shaking his head. It's like, what a weird little moment of humanity that's actually got sort of a little bittersweet quality to it. Um, uh, the actor who played Gomez uh, on um, on Breaking Bad as the landlord, by the way, too. You may have recognized oh, him. Oh, yeah. And then I would say, and I don't know if I did say this is my least favorite part of the movie, but I do think the 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 vignette that the movie ends on is a little too strange <laughs> for me to just leave me hanging, which is a homeless man digs out of the trash a card that we've seen earlier that he has 
tried to reinvent the sort of coin tree style card. When I was growing up in the 70s, you would frequently get a card from some great aunt or something that had like a little pyramid with pennies at the bottom, uh, <laughs> nickels above that, dimes above that, and a quarter at the top or something. You know, there would be like some way of getting you some coinage. Back then it meant something to get like a buck or two and change. So uh, that gag, I don't know, what was that? Like maybe I'm really just saying, what was that? Was that like a sappy moment of, of maudlin sentimentality where we're supposed to think he's a humanitarian because look what he's doing or are we supposed to see the absurdity of oh he sticks he sticks a coin card in the trash for this homeless guy every that week? was an odd moment to end on ending on it is what made it weird too I, I didn't even get what you got from it which was that that uh that he had left the card purposefully there for shitfoot to find uh i just thought that they randomly decided he finds one of these coin cards uh at this moment and we're going to end the film on that first we see that and that Bob Unkirk watches uh, bum fights, and Shitfoot is is uh, is one of the main players. Okay, and then in the middle of the movie, we are reminded that, uh, or or there's some bit of dialogue where somebody says, "You watch bum fights," and he says, "It makes me feel better about myself." But yeah, that final moment of finding the coins was still to me like mm, not the best moment to end the movie on, and I don't really get what's what the thought was there. I gathered the whole thing about the bum fights and I remembered that. And if you had said, what about the bum fights? I would have remembered that, but I had forgotten specifically shit foot from the, <laughs> from the bum fight that he was watching. Right. And that, that is, this is a, a, uh, an example of when you miss a line of dialogue, because it, it is there that when he sees him in the middle of the movie or whatever, he, he mutters to himself shit foot. But if you, yeah, if you don't remember that that's his name, and and you don't recognize his face, then yeah, you would have totally just thought he said some strange breathy exhalation. It just drifted out of my brain that the bum in the bum fight was named Shitfoot. It makes a lot more sense now that I I realize the connection because he kind of admires Shitfoot. Shitfoot has helped him out right. through a rough time, <laughs> um, and and he knows that he can where Shitfoot hangs out. You know, right. so it's like he saw a celebrity, he admires Shitfoot from the videos, yeah. he sees him, he knows where he lives, and then at the end he does this strange thing. I mean, so I really think that it's meant to play as a joke that this is his this his version of charity is right. to leave something in the trash, like a, an anonymous message for Shitfoot through the trash. Right. I think you're right. Are we supposed to think that that's actually good? <laughs> right. Finding a, a dollar in coins or whatever and grinning. And that's the end. It's an odd note to end on either way. But now I think we've pieced together how it is at least a gag with a beginning, middle and end. Right. I like how each of us both had a part of the puzzle, you know, that you knew yeah. that, that it was deliberately left for him, and I knew uh, who it was and the importance that it was a character. But it's, yes, but you can see now the humor in the notion of that guy going, yeah, I did a good thing uh, after seeing that. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Like, now we know that it's part of his weird thing where he's not going to sell his feelings, so he's being a driving instructor. I mean, it's all very it's all very silly and, and fun in that sense, but... So yes, I would say uh, a nice a nice dose of Odenkirk in the off season, and coming right up, we'll have we'll have ten weeks of Odie, old Odie Odie cakes. <laughs> All right, well, I guess uh, that could wrap it up for this this uh, installment, and we'll just uh, look forward. Anything else you want to say? I think I got all my my major thoughts in, and um, I got nothing else. Okay, I guess we're done. All right, hot talk. Hot talk. <laughs> Is that how we're going to do that? I think I'm fine with that. <laughs> <laughs>